All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7 is where we're going to be at today. Finishing up Romans chapter 7 and what sort of turned into a little bit of a mini-series. This is part 4 of uh, you know the, these, uh, these last couple of chapters, looking at chapter 6 and chapter 7. And the idea is, is how to win your war with sin. That's really what Romans 6 and 7 are looking at. So we're going to be looking at Romans 7, 13 through 25. Um, I was recently having some trouble with my kitchen sink. You ever had that happen? You have some stuff going on with your sink and you got to figure that stuff out. And so, you know, the sprayer wasn't really working very well. And, and so I was able to figure out how to take that apart and replace it. And I had to buy a different part for it. And, and it took a while and I got it figured out, got it fixed, got the, repla- the replacement sprayer all put in. That worked all right for a while. Uh, but then, uh, you know, right where the, the water comes out of the... the uh, uh, what is that part? The kitchen nozzle, whatever. It's the uh, aerator, I think is what it's called at the very end. Uh, so that was, it had some junk in there. So I took that apart, cleaned that out. Well, then, you know, that worked for a while. And then the, the sprayer started losing all of its power again. And I'm like, man, this is crazy. I just need to replace this whole faucet. That's what I need to do. And so, you know, I, I go into the, to replace the faucet and I do all the research. I watch a YouTube video cause you know, that's, that's what you do when you don't know what you're doing. And, uh, so I'm watching this video and, uh, it's like, man, this is going to take me like 20 minutes. This is amazing. I just need to unscrew this one and I need to put this one in and screw that one in and we're going to be solid. Well, like you're probably guessing, as almost every plumbing thing goes, I had issue upon issue upon issue, and I had to break part of stuff to get it to even come out. Um, and after many hours, I think it ended up being four or five hours and a few trips to Lowe's, I was able to finally get the new faucet put in. And man, it works beautifully. The water pressure is actually too high now. Uh, and so it's, it's a totally different uh, problem that we have going on. But you know, the, the thing of it is, is that sometimes you're trying to figure out the problem and you're putting all of your effort and energy into to these, you know, small issues. And if you put all of your effort into the wrong solutions, they might seem to, to work or take an effect for a time, but actually they're just prolonging the real issue. They're, they're, the real issue is... It's not the sprayer, man. You got to replace the whole nozzle. And so uh, that's kind of what we're going to be looking at together today in Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. It's this. Here's our big idea. The power for victory that you need is not found in you. It's only found in Jesus. That... If, if there's anything you're going to get today, get that thought, get that phrase, that the power to change things in your life, the power for the victory that you need in your life over whatever situation that you find yourself in, whatever scenario is plaguing your thoughts and your minds, whatever sin that's overwhelming you, you don't have the strength. Jesus does. And you've got to get it from him. So let's read Romans 7, 13 through 25, and then we're going to go back through and break it down together. Now, I just want to, before we get into this section, I just want to warn you, I guess, it's going to be really wordy, and you're probably going to go, what? Uh, because of the way that it's worded. But we're going to do our best to read through it, and we'll go back through and, uh, and break it down together. Romans 7, 13 says this, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me the, uh, through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. 
For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For, it, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do, I do not find. For, what, uh, for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to open your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to deliver it to us. We thank you, God, that we can see how uh, you have preserved your word over the ages. But you, you gave it through holy men, as we were told in, in scripture, as they wrote according to the, the unction or the moving of your Holy Spirit. And the words that they penned back then, thousands of years ago, are exactly the same that we have today. You don't change, you don't shift, you don't move, you don't, you don't alter, you don't, uh, you don't change who you are based on popular opinion or whatever the political atmosphere is. You are who you are. And God, we pray that you would help us to become more like you, that you would transform us, that our time spent in your word wouldn't just be time spent in a book, time spent in an intellectual pursuit, but it would be time spent with you and that you would transform us. So God, we commit today to you. We commit this time to you. We thank you for your great love for us. And we pray that you would help us to pursue you all the more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today, as we look at Romans 7, 13 through 25, we're going to break it down into two parts, right? The first part is going to be 13 through 19, our war fought within. And then the second part is verses 20 through 25, our deliverance from death. Now, in the first half of chapter 7, Paul lays out for us how the law is holy, how the law is just, how the law is good. And the reason it is, is because it's a reflection of God's character. That It just shows us who God is. It's, it's reflecting the perfection of God. There's nothing wrong with the law. And, and when we get to that point of, of understanding, the law is good, then what we naturally do, what people naturally do, we come to this realization and we start to look inwardly. And we start to think, well, how can I do that law in order to please God? How can I perform and get on God's good side? How do I get on the dean's list that Jesus has? How do I make sure that I'm in a position where he likes me because I've done all the things, I've checked all the boxes. And so we search and we scrape and we look for this hidden key. What's the key to success? What's the secret to success? And we think, whatever it is, I'll make it happen. And the thing is that uh, this, the, this mountain that we think we have to climb or this prayer that we have to recite or these verses we have to be memorized or this, this price that maybe has to be paid, we think, what is it? I'll do it. And by doing that, I'll fix me. 
You see, the temptation is for us to believe that our flesh can do what God has called us to do. Romans 6, 6 says it like this earlier in, in our uh, study together. It says this, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. You, you see, your, your flesh was never supposed to be able to do this. Your, your sinful self, that's what that word flesh means in scripture. There's two different terms for flesh. One can mean your flesh and bones, your body. But the other part of it is that evil thing inside you that's bent on doing what's wrong. That's the sinful self. That's the sinful nature. You can't accomplish God's law by your flesh. That's not what, it's, that's not what uh, the Lord is intending for you at all. No, Romans 6 tells us it needs to die. That's all it needs to do. It's good for dying. That's all that it's good to do. And the more deeply we look into ourselves to find the solution, the more we find the problem, the more we find the failure. Yourself, your flesh is the problem. It's not the solution. So we can't look to ourselves to try to, to fix ourselves. That's, that's what the world sells. And it's an absolute, absolute foolish pursuit. You see, we need Jesus to step in. And so let's look at this first part together. Our war fought within, verses 13 through 19. Look back at verse 13. It says this, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin might, uh, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So here what we have in verse 13 at the beginning there is another rhetorical question. There have been a series of these through chapter 6 and 7. These rhetorical questions are just, they're asked in a way that demands a certain answer. And each time the answer is, of course not, absolutely not, certainly not. Or another way to say it is, are you kidding me? Uh, that, it's just the, the, the question provokes that exact response. You see, it, what it is, is this rhetorical question in chapter, uh, verse 13, is actually a continuation of the thought from verses 1 through 12. You see, the, the thought in verses 1 through 12 is the law of God, whether we're talking about the law of God given at Mount Sinai, or we're talking about the law of creation, or the law of conscience, no matter what it is, it's the law of God given to us. It does three things. Number one, it reveals our sinful nature. Number two, it provokes our sinful nature. And number three, it empowers our sinful nature. That's what we looked at last week. And if you want more on that, listen to last week's message, the first part of chapter seven. But here, what we have in verse 13 is a fourth thing that's added to the list. Not only does the, the law reveal, provoke, and empower our sinful nature, but in verse 13, we see that it actually magnifies our sinful nature as well. That's what the law does. So the natural question then comes, doesn't that make the law bad? I mean, if, it's, if this is what it does, if, if it's connection to my sinful nature is that it reveals, it provokes, it empowers, and magnifies my sinful nature, isn't that a bad thing? And the answer is yes, but that doesn't mean the law is the thing that's the issue. God's law isn't the issue. The bad thing is my sinful nature. You see, the law doesn't produce death in me because it's bad. The law produces death in me because I'm bad. I'm wrong. There's something broken within me. Now, there are two phrases in verse 13 that show us this contrast. Notice there in verse 13, it says, but that sin might appear sin. Do you see that? Appear sin. And then at the end of verse 13, it says, become exceedingly 
sinful. So this idea of a pure sin, it's this contrast to say the law shows the perfection and glory and holiness and majesty of God, but it simultaneously contrasts that with you and me, that we're not that. Whatever it says about God, it shows me simultaneously that I'm not that. I'm not perfect. I'm not holy. I'm not just. I'm not righteous the way that God is. And that no matter how hard I try, I'm never going to climb that mountain. That's what the law displays. But it's not just a, a contrast because, you know, within contrast, we could say, well, it's, you know, it's, it's more like gray. It's not quite all the way black. It's not quite all the way white. It's, it's sort of in the middle. It's that gray in between. Well, that's where this second contrasting uh, thought is given to us at the end of verse 13. Notice there it says, become exceedingly sinful exceedingly sinful. This is what the law does. It shows you that your sin isn't just a little bit. It's actually way worse than you're willing to admit. Your brokenness is way worse than you were ever willing to go into. You see, it's, it's the same kind of a contrast as, you know, a moonless night at midnight and how black it is in the middle of the night when you, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. And that contrasted with the full sun at noon that's the kind of contrast. We're not talking about some sort of gradient in between. We're talking about completely the opposite. And so this is something that the law does. And what this does is it brings us to the next thing we need to know in order to win our war with sin. That there are these, this, this number of things in chapter six and seven that we're looking at are things that we need to know to win our war with sin. And we're brought to number seven and that's found in verse 14. It says this, for we know, see it there? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. You see, the seventh thing that you need to know in order to win your war with sin is that the law is spiritual and therefore cannot be kept by carnal means. Now, what, what's carnal all about? Well, the word carnal, maybe you, when you think of that personally, whenever I think of the word carnal, I just think carne asada. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. And I'm like, meat and tacos. That's what I, that's what I think. Um, and so, and that's actually a, a pretty good image for you if, you, if, the, if that helps you for, uh, for carnal, because it means of the flesh. It means fleshly. All right, so not your skin and bones flesh, but your inner nature, that sinful person inside. You see, the, uh, according to the fleshly nature or characterized by the flesh is the idea of carnal. You see, the, the idea of the carnal man or the, the fleshly man is that they can and should do what's right, but they don't. They still choose what's wrong. They're still pursuing what they know is wrong. You see, the spiritual law cannot be kept or excuse me, it cannot keep control over a carnal or fleshly man because carnality keeps me, look at verse 14, sold under sin. That's what carnality does. That's what living according to the flesh does. And so when I approach God's law and I think I'll just do it, I'll pull myself up, I'll try really hard, I'll hold on really tight, I'm gonna make my way through, I know what it is and I'm just gonna make it happen. When I do that, I'm trying to fulfill a spiritual law by carnal means and I'm failing at it because a spiritual law cannot be fulfilled by carnal means. My carnality keeps me sold under sin, which is violating 
the law. And so Paul now turns to himself in verses 15 and 16 to use his own experience and his own wrestling with carnality to display this internal struggle, this war within. And I think that every Christian can identify with this. Every Christian can identify with exactly what Paul is talking about. They, if, you've been, if you've been saved more than a day, you know exactly what this struggle is like. Uh, verse 15, look at what he says there. For what I am doing... I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I, don't, I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. What a frustrating thing to be in. You see, uh, the, the, it's so frustrating that Paul even says, I don't even understand this. I don't get myself. I don't, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me what's even happening. This is where the struggle begins. That I know what I should do, and so I try to make it happen. And when I fail, it confuses me. You have that experience? You ever known exactly what you should do? You ever known what, what was right? You ever known what you wanted to pursue? You ever known that, you know, this sin that's in my life, this thing that's evil that's in my life, I don't want to do this. I hate that. And, and I, I know I need to pursue the things of God. And yet, and yet you find yourself falling into that pit. You find yourself falling into that trap. You find yourself not doing the stuff you should and doing the stuff that you really don't want to do. You see, every, I think the reason that this is, difficult for us to understand and grasp is because every skill you've ever learned in life, you've learned by, um, you know, somebody explaining it to you, you understand what it is, and then you accomplish it. You know, whether it's learning how to make a pancake or learning how to drive a nail or, you know, maybe learning how to build an AR-15. Uh, no matter what it is, there's a skill involved Somebody had to explain it to you, you understood it, and you applied it, and you were able to accomplish it. That's just the way that things work. That's how our world works. And so we take that idea, and we start applying it to God's word. We start applying it to God's way of living, and we get frustrated because it doesn't work. It's not that I just need to know more. It's not that I just need to be instructed better. It's not that I just need to try harder. It's not like baseball, you know, where you're learning how to hit a ball and someone throws the ball and uh, you swing and you miss. You're like, oh gosh, Here, throw another one. I know I can hit it. That, that's not the way that God's, God's word and God's law and holiness works. It's not that you just need to take another swing and you'll get it. That, that, that the more we swing, the more we strike out. You see, holiness and righteousness are not skills you learn. They are gifts that are given to you by God. That's what holiness and righteousness are. Warren Wiersbe says it like this in his commentary, Be Right. Uh, the law cannot transform the old nature. It can only reveal how sinful the old nature is. The believer who tries to live under law will only activate the old nature. He will not eradicate it. I love the way he says that. That trying to live under the law is going to activate your sinful nature. It's going to arouse, produce more sinfulness. It's not going to eradicate your sinful nature. You see... Doing what you know to be wrong proves some things. Look at verse 16. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. You see, when you do what you know not to do, doing uh, what is wrong, it proves, number one, that the law is right. It shows that the law is absolutely correct. And secondly, it shows that you're bad. It shows that you're wrong. When you do what you know is wrong, it shows, what is, it shows that there is a standard of good and it shows that you are not performing it. So what do we do? Well, typically, we try harder. Isn't that what we do? 
I, I, just, I just need to try again. I just, need to, I just need to knuckle down and get this thing done. And so we spend a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of money trying to clean the flesh, trying to dress it up and trying to cover its stench with perfumes. But here's the reality. It's still a rotten corpse. You can put paint on it. You can put it in nice clothes. You can spray perfume on it, but it's still dead. It's still dead. 2 Peter 2.22 says it like this. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit. You ever had a dog do that? Super gross. Um, a dog returns to its own vomit. And another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. Why do they do this? Like, why does a dog go eat that gross stuff? Because it's a dog. Because that's what dogs do. The only way you're going to get the dog not to do that is to make it no longer a dog. That's how you're going to do that. No matter, you can try really hard. Don't eat that. That's gross. Get that out of your mouth. It's going to go back. It's going to try to eat the gross, nasty stuff. You can take a pig. You can pull it out of the mud. You can wash it up. You can put makeup on it. You can give it glamour shots, put it in a dress. You know what it's going to do? Go back to the mud because that's what pigs do. You, you cannot dress up a pig and think that you changed what it is. And that's exactly what we try to do with our flesh, isn't it? We try to dress it up. We try to make it look nice. We try to make sure other people don't realize how broken and uh, shamefully stinky I really am on the inside. But the truth is, it's still there. You see, covering it up isn't going to help. It's not going to help anything. You got to be transformed. You've got to be transformed the way that death is made into life. The way that darkness is made into light. And that is only possible through the blood of Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. Not enough trying, not enough reading enough books, not going to enough counselors, not getting enough uh, stuff, you know, from YouTube, not listening to enough politics. Please don't do that. Uh, you're, you're just going to be really, really frustrated because you're not changing. You're not transforming. You're just dressing up the corpse. Look at verse 17. I love this. But now. Wow, there's, there's a transition. Okay, let's, hopefully there's, there's some better news. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. Isn't that a frustrating thought? I know what I should do, but I, how to do, I don't know how to do it. Verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that. I practice. You see, this phrase, but now, what this is, is it's not transitioning in the thought. It's a continuation of the same thought, isn't it? But now is talking about timing. It's talking about a, a phrase of, uh, of timing. Some theologians like to argue about this. You know, you read theologians on this section and they're like, they, they, they just like to debate over, was Paul talking about when he was a Christian at this time or was he talking about when he was not a Christian at this time? And uh, I think that, you know, that is very easily uh, dismissed. You know, but now is very, very clear. It's a different time. It's, it's today. It's not like yesterday that Paul's talking about when he's a Christian, when he's saved. You see, I'll just use my own life as an example. I got saved when I was 17. When I was a non-believer, do you know how much I cared about trying to please God with my life? Zero. That's the right answer. Zero. I cared about pleasing me. I wasn't trying to please God with my life. I was trying to please 
me. And so this whole wrestling over, I want to fulfill God's law. I know what's right. I want to do what's good. I want to pursue what's holy. No, that's not the, that's not the, the mindset or the wrestling of a, belie- of a non-believer. That's the wrestling of a non-believer. What non-believers do is they take what they do that's wrong and they try to justify it and make it right. Internally, they still know it's wrong, but they're not trying to change themselves. They're trying to change everything out there to make what they want right. That's what, that's what we do as people. You see, Paul is wrestling with his flesh as a believer. Now he says in verse 18, nothing good dwells in my flesh. Again, not his body, his evil sinful nature. There's nothing good in it. You see, some people say they can't believe in a God who would allow bad things to happen to good people. But here's the, here's the problem with that. The entire argument is based on a false premise. There are no good people. There's no such thing as good people. Not apart from Jesus, there's not. No, there's people who try to be good. They try to be nice. They try to be kind or whatever. But biblically speaking, there is either holy like Jesus or utterly evil. There's no good in the middle. There is no such thing. And so when we come at this and we say, how could a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? The entire argument's based on a false premise. There are no good people. The right question to ask is, how could a holy God do anything good for such wicked people? That's the right question. And when you ask the right question, you get to the right answer. You see, the issue in all this, it's not our need for more understanding. We tend to think if I just knew more, if I just researched more, if I just taught more, if someone just explained it to me better, then, then I could, then I would get it. You see, right knowing uh, doesn't produce right doing. You need something more than that. Yeah, good information is appropriate. Yes, understanding the right things is, is necessary, but it's not enough. It's not enough to change you. You see, knowing right and wrong doesn't stop me. You ever knew what you should do and didn't do it? You ever knew what you shouldn't do and you did it? Isn't that what he says in verse 19? There's this frustrating position that I'm in. I know what I should do and I don't do that. I, I, do, I know what I shouldn't do and I end up doing that anyway. You see, knowing the difference between right and wrong isn't enough to stop you. You see, the grip of the flesh on your soul is so strong that it will not allow you to do the good. And it keeps you, going back to uh, verse 14, sold under sin. You don't even belong to you. You have to do whatever it tells you to do. It's kind of a bleak picture. There's this war being fought within. Well, secondly, verses 20 through 25, we see that there is deliverance, our deliverance from death. Now, before it gets better, it gets a little worse. Isn't that usually the way it goes? It's like that saying, the night's always darkest right before the dawn. That's very true of this section as well. Verse 20, it says this, now, if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. You see, by doing the evil and not doing the good, it reveals that there is way more evil within me than I'm willing to admit. Maybe I keep it at bay. Maybe I hold it back. Maybe I dress it up and make it look pretty. Maybe I'm able to kind of hide the stench of it for a time, but it's still there. It's still hiding and lurking within me. Now, when he says there in uh, verse 20, I no longer do it, right? That, that uh, he says, um, what I, now, 
if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it. This isn't some sort of like spiritual cop-out that Paul is giving. It's, it's not really me. It's just, you know, it was my imaginary friend. He did it. It's like what the, your two-year-old tells you. Um, uh, I just saw a video recently from a guy that uh, he posted that uh, his, his daughter, I think she was around three, three years old, she had gotten hold of some markers and she decided to, to draw on herself. Anybody have kids do that? I had a few that did that. And uh, they draw, she drew on her eyebrows and drew all over her legs and her tummy and everything. So she had marker all over her and they were asking her, what happened? What happened to you? And it was very clear that she had done it to herself. And she's like, what are you talking about? I don't even know what you're saying. You know, she's trying to deny that anything's wrong at all. And then eventually as they press her, she blames it on her older brother, you know, like uh, that he did it to me. Uh, and it's very clear that she's the one who had done it. You see, we tend to, to do the same kind of a thing. Uh, but that's not what he's doing here. It's not, he's not passing the buck or whatever. He's not trying to get out of responsibility. What he's, what he's saying, he's getting at this. Here, this is huge. You've got to get this. Your flesh, your sinful nature, that's not the true you. There's a redeemed version of you, and that's who God has made you to be. And if you're not living that life, if you're not who that person is, then you are selling yourself way short of the life that God has for you. That he has created you and crafted you and designed you for so much. But if you are settling for living to your fleshly, sinful, self-centered desires, then you are settling for a life that God never intended for you. And you're enslaving yourself to something that will only kill you. It will never give you life. Here's how 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it. This, uh, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone the new life has begun. This is an essential mentality. If you don't get anything, get this. This is an essential mentality to understand the anatomy of your temptation and your sin. Your enemy is the old you and he's still living inside you or she, you know, whatever, you're not a dude like me. So they're, they're living inside you and they're looking to destroy you. That's your enemy. Your enemy isn't that person. Your enemy isn't your boss. Your enemy isn't some political system or that political party or that situation. It's not a virus out in the world right now. It's not, um, you know, if, if, if I just had this thing, or your enemy isn't Satan. Your enemy is you. Now, there are other things out there that can bring that distraction, but your biggest enemy is you. And most Christians don't categorize the flesh as the enemy who needs to die because that's too mean. I mean, just, you know, I don't want to be too, I don't want to be too extreme with any of this stuff. I don't want to be one of those born-agains. Well, that's exactly what you need. You, that flesh needs to die. And we, you know what we do with our flesh? We spend time coddling it. We spend time comforting it. We spend time feeding it and caressing it. And, oh, you, you feel sad. Let's go sit on the couch. Oh, you don't, you don't like when I tell you no. Okay, I'll tell you yes. And we think I'll appease my flesh a little bit and then it'll leave me alone. And then I'll be able to go and I'll be able to live holy. And you know what happens? It becomes an ugly monster that looks to devour your entire life. It's like a zombie version of you chasing you down, looking to devour you and eat you. And you're like, well, here, just eat my arm a little bit. That'll be okay. Stop doing that. Like, no, that's exactly the opposite of what you need. You need to put a bullet in that thing's brain. That's what you need to do. 
that's how you're going to survive this thing, right? So get the shotgun and go to town. Here's the, here's the reality. Don't get the shot. Okay. It's an analogy. All right. Anyway. Most people spend too much time catering to their flesh and comforting their flesh. They're making it their buddy instead of their enemy. And then they wonder, why is it so hard? It's so hard because you're feeding the wrong thing. It's so hard because you're giving effort, energy. You're giving time. You're giving your life to the, to the thing that's looking to kill you, to your enemy. So, so you got to label it right. You got to label your flesh as your enemy, not your friend. Look at verse 22. He says this, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. You see, there are two laws set in juxtaposition against one another. There's the law of God and the law of sin. And these are at war with one another. It's, it's very uh, similar to the way the Bible also describes the flesh, right? We've been talking about that and the spirit. There's the, the sinful nature within you. And if you're in Christ, if you're saved, if you've given your life to Jesus, you've recognized that his blood, his death, his burial, his resurrection was for you to save you, to buy you from yourself. And now you don't just have the flesh. Now you have the Holy Spirit of God. There's the flesh and the spirit at war within you. That, that as a new man being born again, you have the spirit and the spirit delights to please God. Notice he says that there in verse uh, 22, for I delight in the law of God. The spirit of God delights in the law of God because the law of God isn't a problem. The law is good. That, that's the right thing. And so the spirit delights in that. But the flesh hates this idea. Here's how Galatians 5.17 describes it. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. That's why you feel that war, right? So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. See, here's what the flesh does. It brings you into captivity. Do you see that there in verse 23? It's bringing me into captivity. You're, you're a, capt uh, a, a captor of the war. You're a prisoner of war. And your flesh is the enemy. It's overpowering you. It's keeping you in prison. The more I fight and try according to my flesh, the more I'm imprisoned by a tyrannical overlord. And the tyrannical overlord, it's not Satan, it's you. You're the tyrannical overlord in your own life. I'm to blame, nobody else. It's not my wife's fault, it's not my kid's fault. It's not my situation's fault. It's not my bank account's too low. It's not that. It's not that guy cut me off in traffic. It's, it's not, well, Satan's just a you know, meanie and he, he, he made fun of me today and he tempted me and so now I guess I have to sin. Temptation came, I just have to sin. No, you do not. No, you do not. Your flesh is overpowering you. That's the issue. Look at verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? from this body of death. Trying to spiritually overcome my failure by my power is an exercise of foolishness because I don't have what it takes. I'm not enough. 
That's what he says there, oh, wretched man. Now, I don't know what the image is that you have in your mind when you hear the word wretched, uh, but here's what this word is actually describing. This word is describing being exhausted and being worn out. It's the word picture of uh, a warrior who's just gone through a really hard battle and they're completely spent. They have no more energy. That's the idea of wretched, completely spent. Now, what is more wretched What is more wretched than you giving your all, doing your best, giving everything you've got to win your war with sin and you still fail? What's more wretched than that? Than realizing I I don't have enough. I can't get to the top of this mountain. It's like a false horizon. Every time I think I'm gonna make it, man, it's just, there's more to go. There's more to be done. Now, there's a word picture here that I think is really crazy and really interesting. I think it's crazy that he even uses it. Look at what he says there in verse 24. He says, who will deliver me? This is where the shift happens. This is great. We're going to get to that in just a second. But notice what he says there at the end of verse 24. From this body of death. Now, that phrase is a very specific phrase, and it actually references a practice that was common, uh, not common, it was fairly rare at this time, but it was widely known. And what would happen is if a king or a dictator or some, somebody wanted to uh, really punish somebody the worst way possible, what they would do is they would literally tie a corpse to that person's body. They, they would take a, 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 a dead body and tie it to your arms, tie it around your torso, tie it to your legs so that you literally were carrying a dead body around with you everywhere you went. Now, Paul cries out and he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because that's the image, that's the word picture that he wants you to see of your flesh. It's like that. It's like this dead body tied to you that's just killing you. And that's what it would do. Prisoners who were sentenced to this, they would eventually be overcome by all sorts of gross diseases and the decaying, there's a corpse literally decaying attached to you. And eventually you would die a slow, painful death from just being uh, basically uh, decaying as as this corpse decayed as well. And Paul is saying, who's going to deliver me? I've tried to cut it off. I've tried to break the chains, but I can't. I'm not strong enough. They're too big. I can't get it off me. I need someone to rescue me. I need someone with, a, with an oxyacetylene torch to come cut this thing off of me. Who can do that? I, I have nothing left. I can't cut myself free. I need help. Here's how David Guzik says it. In Romans 7, 13 through 24, the, what Paul has described for us is the person who wants to please God who wants to live a righteous life, who wants to overcome sin, and they're trying their hardest and all the energy of their willpower to do it, but your willpower can't do it. If your willpower could do it, then you wouldn't need Jesus. You don't need your willpower. That's not what you need. You need supernatural God-given power. You can't get that by trying hard, looking within. You see, this war within, it can be won. It has been won. And the one who won it is Jesus. Notice there in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who can save me? Who can deliver me from this body of death? Jesus can. And Jesus has. He's already won. He's already defeated sin. He's already defeated death. And by faith, when I look to him, I appropriate that victory into my life. It's like cutting that flesh off of me and shedding that body of death. It's no longer 
attached to me. You see, here's something that's crazy about this section. In verses 13 through 24, what we've just looked at and we just read, Paul uses uh, personal pronouns, I, me, my, those, 38 times. 38 times throughout that section, he's, he's using personal pronouns talking about himself. Now, this is really uncommon for the way that, that the Apostle Paul writes, but it's very purposefully used here for two reasons. One is it drives home the point that the solution is not found in me. Over and over again, he's saying, I've looked to myself, I've tried really hard, I, I thought if I just knew more, then I would get it. And every time I found, man, I'm just failing. I'm just, I'm just failing at this thing. And secondly, it draws the contrast that victory is only in Jesus. What he's saying is stop looking to yourself to win your war with sin. Stop, stop trying your hardest. Stop doing your best. Your best isn't enough. You need more. You need something greater. You need Jesus to do it in you and to do it for you. And so we have these mental shifts, these major mental shifts that are taking place throughout Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7. And I just want to go back over. I, I want to highlight them for you as we conclude this today. Uh, and then uh, I want to take you to one place just to illustrate this. But uh, there are seven mental shifts that you need, to, you need in order to win your war with sin. Chapter 6 verse 3 is the first one. You have to know that the old man is dead with Jesus. The flesh is dead with Jesus on the cross. That when Jesus died, you died too. You've got to know that to win your war with sin. Secondly, in verse 6 of chapter 6, the old man is not in control because Jesus is in control. That, that your flesh no longer has control because Jesus is on that seat and so the flesh is dethroned. And then verse 9 of chapter 6, the third thing you need to know in order to win your war with sin, the new man has supernatural power by Jesus. He doesn't just take the old man out of you, he puts a new man into you. And that new man is given supernatural power by Jesus. The fourth thing, verse 16 of chapter 6, you are the slave of Jesus. That when Jesus saved you, he didn't save you to make you God. He saved you to dethrone you so that he would be God. Enthroned in your life, you become his slave. And if that mentality isn't in you, you're not going to win your war with sin. Fifthly, seven, chapter 7, verse 1, you are under the authority of Jesus. You're not just his slave and he doesn't know what you're doing and you're kind of over there. No, you're under his direct authority. He knows exactly what's happening in your life. He directs the steps. He directs the path. When you submit to that, you win your war with sin. Chapter, six, uh, chapter 7, verse 7, number 6, the law reveals my desperate need for Jesus. I, I, I cannot do this on my own. And then, Chapter 7, verse 14, the law is accomplished in me by Jesus. This is how you win your war with sin. It's all about letting go of that old life and taking hold of the new that the Lord has for you. It's all about submitting your life to the Lordship of Jesus. It's all about taking hold of that for which he's taken hold of you and allowing him his right place by no longer catering to and coddling the flesh. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. I just want to read something with you, make a couple of comments, and then we'll be done. Genesis chapter 32. Now, this is a, a section in Genesis that's talking about a couple of guys, um, Jacob and Esau. They were twin brothers, 
Um, and Jacob, his entire life has been lived basically trying to work an angle to get whatever he wanted or try, try to push somebody down to get something else or try to trick somebody. Uh, really, it's an illustration. Jacob's life is an illustration of living by the power of the flesh. If I want it, I got to do it. If I, if I need that thing, I got to trick them out of it. I got to figure out how to get it for myself. In fact, that's how Jacob got his name. The word Jacob or the name Jacob actually means heel catcher or supplanter. It's like I'm trying to trip you up. Uh, is the whole idea. And, and the reason he got that name is because as he was being born, he was literally holding on to his brother's heel, his twin brother, as he was being born. I mean, imagine that. That'd be a pretty crazy thing uh, to see. And so uh, he's doing this. Now, uh, let's read Genesis 32, 22 through 31. There's kind of a bigger piece, but it lays out a story for us that I think is a great illustration for this. Genesis 32, 22 says this, and he arose, is talking about Jacob, and he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. Then he took them and sent them over the brook and he set, uh, sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched his, the socket of his hip, and his socket, the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he, and he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed, uh, just as he crossed over Penu, uh, Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Now, why would I bring up such an obscure story right here? You see, Jacob's life and this moment is an illustration of what you and I need to grasp. Jacob lived the entire, his entire life up to this moment in the power of his flesh. So much so that Jacob, he tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright and then he ran away. And he took off and he'd been gone for many years. Many years later, as Jacob is, is returning home, his twin brother Esau is coming to meet him. And he's coming with 400 men. And Jacob is fearful for his life. And so he's trying to do whatever he can. He's taking his family and his, his goods and he's trying to split them up. And he's saying, okay, if, if they attack us, then you guys run this way and you guys run that way and hopefully we'll make it. And, and he's trying to figure out his way out of this situation, out of this terrible situation. And that night, God meets with him. That's where it says this man wrestled with him. That was the Lord that, that met with Jacob. And he wrestled with Jacob. And Jacob would not submit himself to God. He wrestled God all night long to the point to where God said, fine, you can have it your way and was leaving. And then Jacob clings to him and says, hey, bless me. And what does God give him the blessing of? The blessing of brokenness. It says that God touched his hip. And, and later we read that the, the muscle around his hip socket actually shrank. And, uh, and, and he was crippled literally for the rest of his life. God forced Jacob into a position where he was no longer able to lean on his flesh. Now he was forced to lean on the Lord. He had to trust God in a new way. And this physical change represented a spiritual change that God was performing. You see, this crippling thing was not what Jacob wanted, but it was exactly what he needed. It was exactly what he needed. 
Here, as God does this physical transformation in Jacob's life, he also gives him a spiritual transformation. If you notice there, he changed his name from Jacob, from hill catcher, to Israel, governed by God. He said, I'm not just going to change your physical stature, your physical uh, uh, life. I'm going to change your spiritual life as well. I'm going to change entirely who you are. I'm going to give you a new nature. No longer are you going to be the one trying to work the angle. Now you're going to rest and trust in God. And from this point on, Jacob would no longer stand on his own. He would no longer lean on his flesh. He had to lean on God. He was transformed into Israel. So let me ask you a question. What if the thing that you're avoiding and trying to run away from at all costs, what if that's the exact thing God's trying to use to change you, to transform you, to get you to the end of you so you'll finally submit to him? What if that thing is what God is doing in your life to get you to the end of yourself? Will you submit to him in his way? Will you give up your life and your pursuits and allow Jesus to have his right place, to have his right position? Jesus alone can deliver you from that body of death. Will you trust him to do it? I pray you will. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to, to open it, to read it, to understand it. And I pray that you would help us by your spirit to trust in you. That those who've never given their lives to you, that this would be the moment, that they would submit their lives to you today for the first time and that they would cry out to you asking for your salvation. And for those who have been trying to coddle their flesh and live to please their flesh, that they would cry out to you the same and you would deliver them from this body of death. Jesus, you are our only hope and we trust in you. We pray together in your name. Amen.